Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, January 11th. We begin with a look at the timely topic of online conspiracy theories, specifically when they move from online to spark real-life violence. We speak with a professor and author who says the phenomenon is real and needs to be addressed. Next, we had stateside where calls for the impeachment of President Donald Trump continue following last week's riots at Capitol Hill. We speak with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, on whether it's a real possibility and what this would ultimately mean for Donald Trump. Then we catch up with Global's Jordan Witzel, who's on special assignment this week, focusing on the mental health of our frontline workers. We tee up Jordan's timely series, which airs every day this week at 3 p.m. on 770 CHQR. And finally, coming soon to the Calgary Zoo, a bouncing baby gorilla. We catch up with the zoo's director of animal care for details on the exciting announcement. 610 on your Monday, and one professor says the repetition of false online theories is leading to in-person action, and it's not only happening in the United States. Russell Muirhead is a professor at Dartmouth University and co-author of A Lot of People Are Saying, and joins us now to break down how these conspiracy theories spread and why some of them are now leading to violence. Good morning, Russell. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Professor, talk to us a little bit about, okay, first, can you actually break down what a conspiracy theory is? Because I think we use that, that term quite a lot lately. What, what is the definition, the true definition of it? Well, I'll tell you, it used to be a, a way of explaining certain features of the world that are very hard to, to believe, like how, I don't know, 19 people in Afghanistan successfully attacked, you know, the World Trade Centers and, and, and the Pentagon, or, or how one lone gunman uh, succeeds at, at assassinating the most protected person in the world, John F. Kennedy. So sometimes there are events that are very, they defy understanding. And, and, and one of the kinds of ways of explaining them is to, is to say, hey, there's a conspiracy. It's not just one lone gunman, not just 19 people. And, and it makes sense of the world. Sometimes conspiracy theories are even true. But what we have right now is conspiracy without the theory. Not much evidence. In fact, not any evidence at all. Just a free-floating allegation like rigged, exclamation point, the idea that the election of 2020 was fraudulent. Professor, you know, you gave an example Nothing. back uh, to, to the early 60s, for example, with uh, with Kennedy. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, it's always been there, uh, conspiracy theories, uh, by your def- definition. Have they increased because of the online world? Is, is, this, is there an increase in conspiracy theories, or is it just the same amount? It's easier to disseminate ideas and allegations today. Anybody can say anything to the whole world for free via Twitter. Uh, that was impossible. Just 15 years ago, it cost a lot to communicate. And if you wanted to get your word out, you had to get it past a producer or an editor. I couldn't, you, your producer wouldn't just let anything at all on your show and doesn't let that on today. But anybody can say anything on Twitter. And that's what has really allowed these things to be disseminated all over. And, and, Professor, in terms of how now it's turning to violence, conspiracy theories in the past didn't necessarily result in, in violence, but now we're seeing far more of that. And the example of what happened at the Capitol last week in the United States, obviously the perfect example. Right on. I mean, a conspiracy theory that's trying to explain some feature of the world that, that's very difficult to understand is one thing. A conspiracy theory that's trying to overturn the idea of a legitimate opposition is something else. The legitimate opposition is essential to democracy. The, the idea of a legitimate opposition is acted out when winners of elections refuse to use their power to jail or to kill or humiliate their opponents. And it's acted out when losers of elections 
walk away peacefully and graciously after they lose. That's what democracy requires. But today's conspiracy suggests that these ideas are misplaced. They say, hey, your opponent isn't just an opponent. She's evil. She's running a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizzeria in Washington. That was Pizzagate. <laughs> or, hey, this was a fraudulent election. Now, what do you do if, if the election, if you believe that an election was re- really fraudulent, what do you do? Wait for the next fraudulent election? No, you take up violence. Let's talk about the fact that, you know, over the past few days, we've heard a lot and read a lot about social media shutting down the online social media accounts on both Twitter and Facebook of President Donald Trump. There will be others, and we've heard of Parler, and I think Signal is another one. There will always be different social media outlets. This is something very interesting to me because a lot of it does fall on the personal responsibility of the users and those people reading, as you mentioned the term disseminating. We have to take accountability, you know, personally to find out the sources, right? Right. Listen, the deplatforming of Donald Trump from Twitter is going to be monumental. That will defang this president. Uh, Twitter is his connection to the world. He more than, more so than television, more so than any other medium. It was Twitter, and there is no substitute for it. There's no way he can access his 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 base of millions of people without Twitter. Um, so so listen. Twitter and, and, and YouTube and Facebook, they finally belatedly adopted a truth function. They finally said, hey, before we just let anybody post anything, maybe we should think about whether it's true or whether it's going to incite violence. Again, your producer will not let something on your show that's not true or that's very likely. It, it's both false and is also very likely to incite violence. It would never get on. But it was easy to get that stuff on YouTube or Twitter. So finally, they're adopting a truth function. And finally, they're adopting a a sense of civic responsibility. They have a long way to go. Professor, how safe are we here in Canada when it comes to conspiracy theories and the like? You know, I I, I always like to think that that Canada does things just a little bit better and that therefore you're a little bit safer. But watching your politics over the past, you know, couple months has, has made me worry about the situation there, too. And the same kinds of tools that have been very, very useful for ambitious power seekers here in the United States, um, disseminating a free-floating allegation that rallies your supporters and delegitimates your opponents, we're seeing that in Canada, too. So, um, so I, I think you know, Canadians are going to need to um, – the, the Canadian officials in particular are going to need to summon their courage to speak truth to conspiracy. We've, we've dealt with North America, talking obviously about the U.S. And, and Canada. Is this a problem across the globe or more so in North America? You know, it's been the, obviously the, the, the place where we've seen this most is in the United States, where we have, I think, the most kind of libertarian uh, media ecosystem in, in places where there's been a kind of a, you know, more of a, a, a tradition of state media, even in, in the U.K. with BBC. Um, BBC has a kind of authority that Twitter just doesn't have in British politics. So, I mean, I think it's been delayed. But, but again, I think, I think this is something that's going to... These forces are going to assault democracy all over the world unless the great platforms, as I mentioned, Twitter, adopt a truth function and civic responsibility, and unless public officials are willing to speak truth to conspiracy, which Republican officials in the United States have been unwilling to do until last Wednesday.
Well, you know, that's the thing. We're, we're seeing the, the other platforms that are rising up and again being shut down. But will there be more? And uh, will we ever see an end to the online conspiracy theory? And, uh, you know, and, and how will it affect us as we move forward in history? It's certainly something to watch. Thanks so much for joining us with your perspective. Right on. Uh, you're welcome. Glad appreciate, to be here. Appreciate your time. That is Professor Russell Muirhead at Dartmouth University. 909, and today marks the beginning of a push to either remove President Donald Trump from office or impeach him if he is not removed. Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent, joins us with the latest morning. Reggie. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. So let's talk about it. I mean, all eyes south of the border, obviously. Is impeachment possible before President-elect Joe Biden takes over, or does it matter if it all happens before that? Uh, yes. Uh, impeachment is very possible. Uh, if Right now, actually, within the next couple of minutes, uh, the Democrats have just gaveled in their session today. Uh, and the article of impeachment charging Donald Trump with incitement of insurrection is going to be introduced uh, any moment now, which is ultimately going to put that on the record. Uh, and what it's going to do is kind of give Mike Pence an opportunity to invoke that 25th Amendment to remove President Trump's powers. If he doesn't do that in a 24-hour time frame, as demanded by Democrats, they are going to put this to a vote probably on Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, and, in, and, and Nancy Pelosi is confident that the numbers are on her side right now. You need 217 to sign on. There's about 214 members uh, that are giving a thumbs up right now. So essentially, by the end of the week, President Trump very, could, uh, very well could be the, the first president in U.S. history to be impeached twice. So Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have their kind of a backup plan. What are the odds or what is the likelihood that Vice President Mike Pence does step in and, and do what has been asked of him from Pelosi and from actually some Republicans. Yeah, there are a growing number of Republicans who are calling for President Trump either to be resigned or to be removed from office. And this is obviously a break in ranks uh, from what we saw during the impeachment at the end of 2019 uh, and early 2020. Uh, but we also uh, need to remember Mike Pence has not come out and formally said that he is not going to, uh, you know, ignore or not use the 25th Amendment. It's these kind of circular conversations that have been going on for the last couple of days. Uh, and that is why Democrats are saying, look, you have 24 hours to follow through with this. And if you don't, then it is going to be a stain again on the Trump presidency by a second impeachment moving forward. And by all accounts, Trump and Pence are not on speaking terms right now anyway. So is that making it even more inevitable? Uh, Reggie, more importantly, though, curious as to what it means should Donald Trump be impeached? Well, if President Trump is impeached, what it means is that he has uh, you know, formally been censured by the House. It is not going to remove him from office. That needs to go through a trial in the Senate. Uh, and the Senate is uh, not in session right now, so they wouldn't even be able to take that up until uh, after the inauguration of Joe Biden. So that is why there's kind of this push right now to at least put it on the record that President Trump was held accountable by members of the House even before uh, the Senate is able to do anything about this. There are open questions as to whether this is going to take place uh, immediately, if they're going to transmit these articles to the Senate, you know, as soon as the Senate returns on the 19th, or if they're going to wait several weeks until the Biden administration has been able to move forward with what they want for their agenda. The Democratic Party is really split right now. They want President Trump held accountable, but they also don't want this to jam up what Joe Biden needs to do. So down the line, let's, let's uh, you know, just throw it out there. If he is impeached and we're talking weeks or, or even some months from now, what does this mean for citizen Donald Trump, if you will, as far as 
you know, we've heard rumblings that he will no longer be able to, you know, within within the Constitution, run for for government office again. That he would perhaps lose his pension and uh, secret service detail. Is is that correct? Can you uh, confirm any of those? So, look, the Constitution needs to be interpreted for what happens if somebody is. Uh, convicted during an impeachment trial, and they're no longer in office because this really hasn't happened before, uh, there likely might have to be a secondary vote that is put to the floor with a simple majority of 50 plus one to tell President Trump that he is no longer allowed to run for federal office. That's where we have to point this out. If President Trump is impeached, if he's convicted, if even if it's after he's already gone, because of the federalist uh, system in the United States, that would not prevent President Trump from going down and seeking some kind of state-level office. The only thing that's going to get in, pre- uh, that in citizen Trump's way is if there are any uh, uh, kind of criminal charges brought against him at the federal level or at the state level, given any of the investigations that are going on against him right now, that would ultimately get in the way of his political future. This is something that Donald Trump is going to have to be navigating uh, for the next several months, if not the next several years. So is that, is that really the, the majority of the main point for the Democrats then is to try and ensure that Trump can't run again? I think right now the main point for Democrats and these, these kind of Republicans that are following into the Democratic caucus Uh, I think what their main point right now is to hold President Trump accountable for what happened in the United States last week. Look, this this article of impeachment draws on everything that President Trump has done for the last several months, whether it's lying about the election results, whether it's, uh, you know, inciting the quote unquote insurrection that happened inside Congress, whether it was a pressure campaign uh, on state leaders uh, in order to change the results of the election. This is all uh, kind of been circulating now for the last several months and has been facing pushback from within Trump's own party. But at the end of the day, Democrats want President Trump to be held accountable for what happened. That is why they are moving forward with this. They don't want this kind of uh, this kind of legacy to be. You can be in the Oval Office and you can essentially almost incite a war within Congress uh, and get off the hook and have no consequences for it. They don't want to see this happen again. Well, it's a Democratic perspective, as you mentioned, and you mentioned, Reggie, yes, there are some Republicans who have, you know, had a a change of heart over the past week or perhaps even longer working up to last week. Uh, But I'm wondering if this is perhaps looked at from the Republican perspective as a chance for a reset as they have a candidate that's almost, you know, bigger than the party right now and might not align exactly with their values. Well, they have to be careful right now because even when President Trump is not in office, they are going to understand that he may still be able to control the strings Mm -hmm. within the Republican Party. And his base is not going to be going anywhere uh, just because he is no longer sitting in the Oval Office. So there is going to be a break within the Republican Party where you have the Trump Republicans uh, and then you have the kind of moderate, conservative, old school GOP Republicans. They're disorganized, though. They don't have the leader that Donald Trump was for the extreme part of the Republican Party. So this is going to be something for them to have to navigate going forward as well. But look, you're now seeing those enablers of President Trump within the Republicans, like Ted Cruz, like Josh Hawley, now facing potential center of their own for their own rhetoric and their own tactics that fell into what happened last Wednesday tied to President Trump. This could be, uh, you know, an attempt to try and dismantle where the Republican Party is right now to try and let them move on beyond Trump. But it's going to take, you know, weeks, if not months, if not years, to find out what the Republican Party looks like when they don't have Donald Trump sitting in the White House. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Reggie. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent.
8.42 now and now more than ever before, our first responders are being forced to handle what has become very increasingly difficult situations. We're joined this morning by global meteorologist Jordan Witzel, who is wearing a very different hat today. Good morning, George. Good morning. Nice to talk to you still on a Monday. Nice to talk to you too. I, I know this is a really important series that you're doing all this week and you'll be focusing here on 770 CHQR. So we're excited to be listening into it. So talk to us about mental health on the front lines. That's the focus all week long, correct? That is the focus. Uh, it's no surprise, I think, to most folks listening that uh, I am a big supporter of our uh, military veterans and their families, mm-hmm. um, especially their mental health. And the concept, uh, the awareness of that uh, and the programs that are out there for our military veterans are actually in many parts also available to other frontline workers. And so I want to put a highlight on that. I want to have real conversations um, each afternoon this week with a whole host of frontline workers acro- from across the country who are aware of the increasing need for um, uh, proper mental health on the front lines and and just talk about some of the programs that are seeing success and some of the research that is taking place as well in order to help, um, you know, our paramedics, our firefighters and our EMS, our police officers, and increasingly our doctors and nurses, uh, you know, in scope of Mm COVID-19. Jordan, what's interesting is, yes, this is something we've all had in common, this pandemic, and it has affected all of us when it comes to our mental health and our well-being. But I think the difference is that for the large majority of us, we could change the way we do things, perhaps work from home, perhaps put up a, a glass partition between our coworkers, if you will, and work in different offices. When you're on the front lines, that certainly, for the most part, has not been an option at all during this pandemic. It is not the case whatsoever. Uh, and for instance, today on today's show at three o'clock, we will be talking with the police chief, Mark Newfield, um, from all things. We will talk a little bit about, you know, what homicide detectives face day to day, even outside of COVID. How do they decompress from dealing with with murders? Uh, but also there are those police officers that are at anti-mask rallies. Uh, you know, you can't really say no. I'd rather not do that mm-hmm. and or put a glass partition up. So uh, they're really on the front lines dealing with that. And yeah, there is no option where we will be later this week speaking with um, a handful of doctors and nurses who have signed up for this, um, but it doesn't make it easier. They are more than willing to be there on the front lines, helping those who are sick, whether it is with or not COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But you imagine going home and not feeling necessarily safe and clean around your family when you know you've been in some sort of contact with, you know, airborne airborne diseases like COVID. Adds to the stress of, you know, all the, yep. the crazy things that go on in the frontline jobs anyway. So mental health on the front lines all this week, right here on 770 CHQR at 3 p.m. That's when your special feature will air each day, correct? That is correct. And Taken kind of, over. Yeah. So tell and, us how it's going to work, how it'll, it'll kind of shape up. We are, it's a half hour program, uh, two guests each day, and uh, today we'll be talking with a, a clinical psychologist who actually, uh, practicing here in Calgary, also helps run a program, an equine therapy program, Can Praxis in Central Alberta. Um, so it's really, that program has been open to veterans and police officers. They are looking to expand their program to treat more frontline workers to help them come out and uh, receive therapy while being around horses. And that is, research shows, a very uh, good benefit. We'll be talking to some other psychologists, some psychologists who have served in the military, 
We'll be speaking with uh, members of the Calgary Fire Department. And um, my what I am looking forward to most is a psychiatrist who used to practice here in Calgary and teach at the Cunning School of Medicine. She is now the uh, lead psychologist for the Toronto Maple Leafs on high performance. There are parallels between high-performance athletes and those high-performance frontline workers and the stresses uh, that come inherent with the job. Uh, Very different type of stresses, but similar way of dealing with them. Psychology, uh, I can't say it, guys. I'll be speaking with that psychiatrist uh, come Thursday. You've got till noon to practice that word. (laughs) Only till noon? (laughs) I can't even say meteorology. (laughs) You're not alone, my friend. Well, it's going to be a really, really interesting and uh, really forward-thinking series. So excited to, to hear you get going with that today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Good stuff. Uh, Jordan Witzel, of course, we know him as a meteorologist from Global News. His special series, Mental Health on the Front Lines, kicking off today at 3 p.m. and every day this week on 770 CHQR. 919, and the Calgary Zoo is soon going to be welcoming a new resident. With more on some exciting baby news, we're joined this morning by Jamie Dorgan, Director of Animal Care for the Zoo. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, This is big news. You guys are not monkeying around, so lay it on us. Yeah, we're (laughs) super excited. Um, We recently found out one of our gorillas is pregnant and expecting in uh, around April or May. So, yeah, we're all very excited about that. Let's talk about pregnancy in the gorilla world. How long is is a term? And, uh, you know, well, it's... uh, Bottom line, how how rare something like this is, not only at the Calgary Zoo, but in uh, captivity. Yeah, they're very, very similar to people. So we're looking at about kind of eight and a half, nine months here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, a lot of developmental stages are very, very similar as well. So, um, you know, that's it's easier for people to kind of get their head wrapped around that. So we're following along with her and hopefully everything's going to go well. the our gorillas, like all gorillas in North American zoos, are part of the species survival plan, so they're part of a managed breeding program. So uh, they're not super common births. What we're trying to do is, you know, make sure that uh, every gorilla has an opportunity to have have a few kids along the way, and also make sure we're maintaining genetic diversity. Obviously, for us, it's important to to keep gorillas around and keep them on the planet. They're critically endangered in the wild, and we want to make sure that we have good genetic representation in case we can help out in the future. Uh, you know, if gorillas need to be repopulated or or we in any other way we can help in the, the Jamie, wild gorillas. Jamie, is this one of the first gorilla babies at the zoo, our zoo? Yeah, this is the first one in a few years. We have little Kamani, who was born in 2016, and she was our last baby with our previous silverback, Kakinga. And this is, but this is going to be our first uh, for our new silverback, Jasiri, and his first kid as well. So we're really excited about that. But we've had um, a few gorillas over the years, but not many recently. So, so yeah, it's, it's exciting. I know that it's still a world away when you look at April and and May, uh, but I know that the people out there are going to be saying, when are we going to have the chance to see this baby gorilla? So tell us the process uh, as far as following protocols behind the scenes when a new baby is born until the, the public will get the opportunity. Yeah, for sure. So this is a we've got a first time mom and a first time dad here. So we're we're being a little cautious. There's no guarantee things are going to go the way we all want them to go. So obviously that's the first point. But we're working really hard to help prepare mom and make sure she has everything she needs so her and the family are ready to go. And she's got her human caregivers and our veterinary team to all support if anything goes wrong. So assuming everything goes well, which of course we're hopeful for, the first few weeks they'll definitely be quiet and on their own. The building will be closed. Um, hopefully by May or June the building will be able 
able to be open for our public again for other reasons, obviously. But within a few weeks, if everything's going great, then we'll let um, we'll let people slowly come into the building and be able to start seeing them. So really what we're hoping for is a great summer where things are returned a little bit to normal and we've got a happy gorilla troop that people can come see. And if, if all things go well, a baby with that group as well. Jamie, do you keep mom and dad together through the pregnancy or does she get separated? How, what does that look like? Yeah, gorillas are a social species where everybody hangs out together. Dad's job is to look after the group at all times, so he's doing a fantastic job with everybody. And then, of course, um, Yuande's got her, her half-sister and her mom in there, and she's got her kind of adopted aunties in, in Dossie and Kyoja as well. So the whole group stays together, and everybody can, can hopefully support her along the way and, and help everything along. Nice. Some great names. You mentioned Yuande, and we mentioned Kamani. Um, the naming of, of a baby gorilla, is this something down the line that would be open to the public, or, or, or where do the names come from? Yeah, we're not quite sure yet, but usually we do involve people in these higher-profile animals because, you know, these are long-lived animals that are around for a long time, and like you said, we really want to come up with some great names that, that fit the, um, you know, really honor the animals and give uh, people an opportunity to connect with those animals and hopefully care for them so they can care for our gorillas but care for gorillas in the wild as well. So maybe a public opportunity for that, but, you know, as we get closer and things we find out things are going well, then we'll engage people at that point for sure. Great baby news for the Calgary Zoo. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's Jamie Dorgan, Director of Animal Care for the Calgary Zoo with a new Western Lowland Gorilla to be born this this coming year.